the fight for a better TV theatrical contract, global ideas emerged. AI will entrap us in a matrix where none of us know what's real. If an inventor lacks empathy and spirituality, perhaps that's not the invention we need. SAG after President Fran Drescher at this weekend's SAG Awards, warning about the potential for artificial intelligence to upend Hollywood. Fears over AI were one of the major drivers of the actors and writers strikes last year. Even though both unions won concessions on AI from the studios in their new contracts, the technology is advancing fast. Enter Sora, OpenAI's new text-to-video program. It allows users to create videos based on just a few word prompts and the result, complete scenes with characters and motion. Sora's potential caught the attention of filmmaker Tyler Perry. He canceled an $800 million studio expansion after seeing what Sora could do. Joining us to talk about AI and Hollywood is Ryan Fonder. He covers the entertainment business for the Los Angeles Times. Welcome back, Ryan. Hey, Madeline. And also Paul Trillo. He's an L.A.-based independent filmmaker who's been using AI tools in his films for the past few years. Hi there. Hi, Madeline. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. All right, let's begin with you, Ryan. A few weeks ago, Sora was debuted, and you can basically put in a few words, as I said, as a text, and then it can churn out a video as long as a minute. Describe these videos and why they were so amazing to so many people. Well, it's um, it's in beta testing still, so they're still looking through it and uh, making sure. And they said they have uh, a team of people looking at these videos to make sure uh, that they're not stealing IP, that they're you know doing what they can to combat misinformation and all that kind of stuff. But uh, with that throat clearing aside, um, what these videos show are basically simple scenes of things based on a prompt like show us a, a young stylish woman walking through the streets of Tokyo with these signs neon in the background and and voila you know apparently uh, the, the technology can generate these uh, videos that look pretty realistic and uh, pretty smooth pretty crisp uh, eerily so actually in, in, mm -hmm. in some cases and you know especially when you're looking at uh, renderings of animated characters like say show me a a fluffy creature uh, playing with a uh, with a candle that's melting. Um, I mean, it looks it looks pretty good. The human stuff is a little bit is a little bit uh, more iffy as as you would expect. But this is early days, and people recognize that you know this is gonna this could set off a bomb. Yeah. So it, then Tyler Perry reacts by canceling the studio expansion. Uh, are other Hollywood executives similarly freaked out? Yeah, it's a, it's a range of curiosity, wanting to be on the ground floor, wanting to understand what's happening. And, you know, and then you get to the freak out stage, uh, of course, where you have uh, visual effects artists and, you know, naturally and people who run animation studios. I mean, if you can automate uh, the, some of these processes of you know character creation and, and all this and all this stuff, then that could have a pretty significant impact on on jobs you know, if you could streamline streamline those things, which take a really really right. long time to do, um, and are extremely expensive. And Hollywood studios right now are under a lot of pressure from Wall Street to save money 
in just about any way they can. So yeah, there's, yeah. there's definitely a range of, of response. All right. And Paul, what was your reaction when you saw what Sora could do? Yeah. I mean, I have been tracking AI video, AI animation for, you know, a few years now and um, primarily, you know, using it in my own work in concert with like live action and, and trying to kind of maintain that control. Uh, also because the AI video prior to this just kind of wasn't up to snuff. It, it had interesting kind of side effects or interesting sort of uh, aesthetic on its own, but it, it wasn't true animation. It wasn't true video. And this, uh, it, it floored me. It was, it was a little unsettling. I have to say, even as someone that is comfortable using some of these tools in my work, it had a quality that I think was edging out of the uncanny Valley. And I think that's what took everyone by surprise that we were already here at this stage. Um, and, and, what I think sets it apart just from a technical perspective is prior video models and uh, prior animation tools were kind of functioning off of like next frame uh, best guessing. So it was just doing it. So it has an image and then it's guessing kind of what should come next and then what can, should come next. And you could imagine uh, AI video before it kind of hallucinates or kind of deviates over time and it becomes a little uh, incoherent. Uh, mm -hmm. What Dora did is it, it created this sort of temporal uh, coherency where, uh, and from what I've, I've been told and understand, it generates uh, the whole idea of the shot all at once. So it understands the first frame and the last frame and everything in between all at once. Um, and that's how it kind of gets this temporal consistency where, um, the, the faces don't morph, the background kind of stays consistent. And, and that's, uh, that, that's a major breakthrough. So that it can move through time and space and not look kind of kludgy as it does exactly. that. Yeah. Kludgy. Yes, exactly. I mean, it's, uh, yeah. What the way they described it is, it is it's like functioning on uh, space time units or whatever that means. It's like, it's creating these uh, like space time objects so that these things uh, exist you know, in a four-dimensional space and not just a two-dimensional space. Right. So as um, Ryan was saying, it it's better with what looks like animation or maybe just, I don't know, scenes of nature or landscapes than with actual mm. people. The people look really fake when I'm just looking at the videos on OpenAI's website. Um, and they don't speak yet, Right. No, uh, although this company, Pika Labs, this morning released a, a lip sync uh, feature to their AI generative videos. Um, the people, I think, is a touchy subject for OpenAI because of uh, this notion of, of deep fakes and, and misinformation. And uh, especially in an election year, they're, they're really conscious of uh, quality that um, I I think the model is actually better than they're letting on is what I can say there that they're oh. purposely. Yeah. They're purposely um, kind of um, like they did with Dolly uh, trying to give it a quality that, that allows us to detect that it's not real, but, but it, it doesn't mean it's not that powerful. That it, that could actually pass for real. So Dolly, Correct. that is the static image AI, right? Not a moving right. AI. Right. That, that so that people you have been using for a while. 
Right. So this is like their essential, like their 4D version of, of Dolly, which Dolly was built off of their GPT architecture. It's a, it's their large language model that is um, kind of understanding relationship between words or relationship between ideas and, and trying to do its best to understand context. They applied that same architecture for image making, and it was sort of a byproduct of, of that large language model they made. And this is sort of the next evolution of expanding their large language model. And from what I understand, they're their mission to achieve AGI, which is artificial general intelligence. Oh boy. Ryan, um, <laughs> we just <laughs> lived through uh, the better part of 2023 uh, with the strikes. And I'm wondering if the contracts can take it, have taken into consideration all of this, or is the technology just moving so much faster than anyone in legal offices can understand or keep up with? Well, this often happens when there's a new technology that emerges and it's moving fast. It almost always moves much faster than legal or legislative or any of that can really can really keep up with. And so you end up, you know, with legal frameworks that end up kind of putting it together the pieces after the fact. Um, what happened last year was so interesting because all of this AI stuff really blew up as soon as the Writers Guild was uh, getting into negotiations. And so what seemed like kind of a side issue at the beginning of the labor negotiations turned into this big thing that seemed like it was uh, almost the centerpiece of the controversies in the way, um, it, you know, on top of all the other stuff that they were working on uh, regarding pay and everything. But but yeah, I mean, this is uh, anyone from the SAG negotiating committee or anyone from the uh, contingent of SAG th that thought that the uh, SAG after contract didn't go far enough can certainly point to something like Sora and say, "This look, this is exactly what we're talking about. And um, if it is, in fact, the case that it, they, they can create a, a human replica or a, a synthetic performer that's even better than what it looks like um, on the kind of fake looking videos that we've seen already, then yeah, I mean, the, the, the contract may not go far enough to address something like that. Like that could be something that, that was quite mm. scary for actors right now. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about the job part of it because Tyler Perry in that Hollywood reporter interview said that he has already used it, not Sora, but another AI to avoid, as he calls it, hours of um, actors sitting in the makeup chair with putting on aging makeup. So for one, that's makeup artists in jeopardy of losing their jobs. But where do you see, what other professions do you see as most threatened by this? Ryan? You could look at, uh, you, you could look at animators. You could, there was just a report that came out um, almost a month ago from the Animation Guild that looked at not only the number of jobs that could be affected by these innovations in the next three years, but specifically the types of jobs. And it's not like your headline uh, actors and 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 you know, it's not the Tom Cruises in the world of the world necessarily. It's like the technicians and the people who are you know, coloring artists and things like that. Um, you know, things that could potentially be automated by this technology uh visual effects mm -hmm. that's all stuff that studios really really care about um and spend a lot of money to produce and, and a lot of time and anything that can uh make that process go faster you know, they're gonna have to take seriously because of the incentives in the marketplace 
Right. And Paul, what do you think as someone who's used it? Where do you think the biggest threats are? Well, I think there's already um, jobs, not even down the line, that are that are being affected. Uh, You mentioned makeup artists. I I've actually used um, to with a much smaller budget. I've done aging makeup on a on a music video I shot at the Louvre recently, which we didn't have the budget for uh, a makeup artist and we didn't have the time to be at the Louvre for for four hours to do the aging makeup. So it was in that specific use case, it was something that we, it was an effect we wouldn't have done uh, had we not had access to AI. So the flip side, I think for independent filmmakers is they can actually achieve effects and ideas and concepts that they wouldn't have uh, attempted before. So that's on like the lower scale on the studio scale. It's, it's the onus is on, on the, the major players to uh, you know, uphold their hiring practices. Um, but I, and the jobs that are already being affected that I can see is, is concept artists. Um, why would you hire a concept artist that, that actually can be an expensive price in a pre-production phase when the director can just immediately start typing text in and getting an image. And um, I think I, I, as someone that uses the tool, I think it's a sad loss. I, lo- I love working with concept artists and, and storyboard artists because there's a lot of, um, you know, human experience that goes into like that conversation uh, to, to reach an idea. Um, and so that's that's somewhere I think um, looking down, uh, I mean, already also map painters, background painters um, is something under threat and, um, and then yes, animation and VFX, uh, which is a lot of how I use it is as a good VFX tool. Um, but mm. I think, you know, it's, 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 it's a head on collision with, with where like the, the industry is in a, in a tight spot right now. And, and they're like already kind of creatively bankrupt and they're, and they're canceling projects they're doing things from, for very capitalistic reasons, you know, um, using projects as tax write-offs uh so i feel like ai could open up more projects to be made is the sort of optimistic view of this yeah well yeah it's a whole new world literally paul trillo la-based independent filmmaker ryan fonder covers the entertainment business for the la times thank you both thank you so much madeline thanks madeline County DA George Gascon is facing a tough re-election battle. We'll talk about why he's being challenged from within his own office. That's next on Press Play. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars.
This is Press Play on 89.9 KCRW. I'm Madeline Brand. Eleven candidates are competing to unseat L.A. County District Attorney George Gascon. He won four years ago with a progressive vision of restorative justice. He would not seek the death penalty, no adult charges for juveniles, less focus on nonviolent misdemeanors. But after a challenging first term, Defined by the pandemic, he has had to reverse some of his progressive stances. His critics say he's too soft on crime, even though most crime stats are decreasing here in L.A. Everyone running to defeat him wants to take a tougher approach than he. Joining me to talk about this is longtime political watcher Jim Newton, former L.A. Times editor, a professor of public policy and communications at UCLA, where he edits their journal Blueprint. Hi, Jim. Hi. How are you? Great. Well, let's first talk about George Gascon's tenure. And it got off to a really rocky start. He faced an internal rebellion by some of his DAs. Why was he so controversial? Well, I think partly for substance and partly for style. Uh, He came in, uh, as you said, uh, with a program of reform and changing practices of the DA's office. Uh, That undoubtedly uh, set him at odds with some of the uh, folks who worked there. Uh, and then he implemented a lot of that by by edict and decree right out of the box. And that, I think, alienated uh, many other people in the office who felt that he hadn't uh, consulted them or heard their points of view on it. So I think really from the first week, uh, he was at odds with much of the office. Right. So what about his policies in particular drew the ire of some of the people in his office? Well, I think uh, there's a substance and there's style. Um the opposition to the death penalty, I think uh, some prosecutors mm-hmm. uh, disagree with that. The uh, reluctance to seek sentencing enhancements um, of different types to uh, enhance penalties. Uh, many prosecutors see those as useful and thought that his reluctance to use them was self-defeating. His decisions to treat drug-related misdemeanors more as health issues than as um, as crimes. Um, so he's he views addiction not as something to be punished, but as something to be treated. You know, I think many prosecutors would agree with that, but some think that the option of prosecuting those crimes uh, helps to divert uh, drug users and addicts into treatment by giving them the threat of uh, jail time. Uh, so anyway, there's a whole host of things, uh, but but collectively they added up to a rebellion, really, within his office. Right. And in terms of his approval ratings amongst the voters, what do the voters think? They do not like it. Mm. He's down. Uh, the last, last poll I saw had him at, a, I think, a 24 percent approval rating. That's bad. But what was really worrisome for him, I think, is that he has a 51 percent disapproval rating. And the hard thing about that is... That's people who've made up their minds about him and decided they don't like him. And it's more than half. Uh, So that really signals vulnerability as a candidate. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't a way he can get reelected. I do think there's there is a path to reelection for him. But he starts with really tough numbers to work against. Right. Okay. well, let's talk about some of the people who are taking him on. And four of them come from his office. So that says something, right? It does, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So let's talk about Jonathan Hatami. He's a conservative. He is a deputy district attorney. And tell us more about him. Yeah. He's his main platform. I've called him conservative and I, and, and you have too. And I, I think that's reasonable. I think 
on some issues, he's probably moderate to liberal, but on criminal justice issues, uh, which is what this is all about, he's really uh, positioned himself as the advocate for victims. And that ends up uh, putting him in sort of the law and order lane uh, in this campaign. Um, he's a deputy DA. Um, he's one of those who's really objected to Gascon's um, unwillingness to use sentencing enhancements. So he's very much coming at this as a as a law and order advocate, uh, particularly on behalf of victims and from inside the office. All right. And another guy from inside the office, his name is Eric Sadal, and he is maybe less conservative? Maybe. Yeah. I, I have a hard time getting a real handle on his platform as it is. I mean, he doesn't like Gascon. Uh, that's true of all the internal candidates. And there's a little bit of sort of, you know, striking out against the boss uh, aspect of, of some of these candidacies. Um but he has the support of the deputy DA's union, um, which makes him uh, important to consider. But his platform is a little murkier to me than Hatami's. All right. Another former prosecutor is a guy named Nathan Hockman. He's a former federal prosecutor. He's running as an independent, and he promises to reinstate the use of the death penalty. So talk a little bit more about him. Yeah. Hockman's running as an independent, but he ran two years ago as a Republican for attorney general. Um that puts him in an interesting position in this race. I mean, he clearly wants the lane of the law and order conservative. I think the real difficulty for him is that this is not a Republican county. As he recently discovered, it's not a Republican state either. But if he were to make the runoff, it would be very easy for Gascon to run against him as a Republican, even as he correctly points out, he's running in this race as an independent. Um, and the problem for that is if you're targeted or or labeled effectively as a, as a Republican, in a Los Angeles County District Attorney's race, you're at a real disadvantage. I think that Hawk, if Hawkman were to make the runoff, that's Gascon's best chance of being reelected. Mm. And who is his worst chance of being reelected? I think Chemerinsky would be the toughest opponent for Gascon in a runoff. This is um, Jeff Chemerinsky, who is the son of Erwin Chemerinsky, who listeners may know from being on air here and elsewhere, is the dean of UC Berkeley School of Law. Indeed. And Jeff Chemerinsky, a former federal prosecutor uh, like Hockman, has a solid record of prosecuting criminals, a emphasis on public safety, but also a willingness to embrace some of the aspects of reform. He is, for instance, opposed to the death penalty and supports Gascon's decision not to seek the death penalty uh, in, in LADA cases. Um, so in that sense, he's a little bit of both camps. He offers some of the public safety appeal of a Hockman or a Hatami but also I think could it draw reform supporters. So he's got the support of Wendy Gruel and Jerry Chaliff and uh, Connie Rice, other uh, prominent supporters of police reform and law and criminal justice reform in Los Angeles. Um, so I, I mean, I th my own view is if he were to make, he has a harder time making the runoff in some ways because he doesn't have as clear a lane as a Hockman or a Hatami. Um, but if he were to make the runoff, I think he's got probably the best chance of beating Gascon. Who is supporting Gascon from the political elite? Well, he's got some labor support. Um, he's got some progressive support. Um, what has happened to him over the last four years, though, is that some of what you might think of as his natural allies have peeled away. The most conspicuous non-supporter of him in this campaign is Mayor Karen Bass. Um, she did not endorse him uh, in his last race. Jackie Lacey was in that race, and she and Lacey have ties that go way back. 
But she had the opportunity to support his recall, uh, and she declined to do so. Had she jumped on the recall campaign, it really probably would have spelled the end of him. So her unwillingness to go after him then probably kept him alive. Uh, but she has really quite conspicuously signaled her lack of support in this campaign. Um, I asked her directly recently whether she would endorse in this race, and she said no. And she is, of course, not only a, a prominent public official, the most prominent public official um, in California or Southern California anyway, but she's also a progressive. Uh, and so she's the kind of leader whose support he would like to have and doesn't have. Uh, and that's part of what makes him vulnerable. Interesting. But meanwhile, crime is down in a lot of categories, right? Yeah, you know, I, it's funny. Uh, I, I've gone to, I've listened to a bunch of these uh, DA debates um, and gone to one. Uh, I uh, and you know, some of the candidates talk about it as this, you know, dystopian Los Angeles, or you know, rate the how safe you feel in Los Angeles on a scale of one to ten, and a couple of them said zero. <laughs> and it's like, I, I mean, yes, there, there, crime is always serious and is to be taken seriously, and property crime is up a bit. But overall, violent crime is actually down a little. You know, I, for those of us who lived through the, you know, the 1990s in LA, mm. uh, this is a very safe place uh, compared to the city and county in those days. There were almost 1,100 murders in 1992 in the city of Los Angeles. Last year, there were 327, I think it was, and 327 is a lot of tragedy. I mean, that I don't mean to make light of that at all, but it's just qualitatively a different place in terms of safety than it was. 20, 25 years ago. So if a crisis environment is what it takes to elect a law and order conservative here, I don't think we're there. And so I think that may be a misreading of the electorate on the on behalf of some of these candidates. All right. Well, thank you, Jim. It's a pleasure. That's Jim Newton, professor of public policy and communications at UCLA, where he edits their journal Blueprint. The owner of Romans has put the bookstore up for sale during its 130-year history. It's had some notable guests, including Howard Stern. Well, there were about 8,000 people, we think, probably 2,000 books. It took eight hours. He stayed and uh, wanted every one of his fans to get the book. A conversation with the owner of Romans next on Press Play. This is Press Play on 89.9 KCRW. I'm Madeline Brand. Roman's Bookstore in Pasadena has been around for 130 years, nearly as long as Pasadena has been a city. It opened in 1894 and has largely remained in the same family. Now the current owner, Joel Sheldon III, thinks it's time to sell. He's looking for a buyer who will continue Roman's mission to cater to the local community of readers. And Joel Sheldon joins me now. Hi. Hi, Madeline. Your family came into Roman's in the early part of the 20th century, and you've had it in your family since then? Well, the family has been in charge since 1916, yes, with other uh, shareholders and employees. But we were always the majority ownership position. Mm -hmm. And have you yourself worked there your entire career? Business career, yeah. 
a little over 50 years, and I've been responsible for it for about 45 years. So why now? Why are you selling now at the 130th anniversary of the store? The simple answer is I'm almost 80 years old, and I would like to enjoy some time in the sunshine. Another reason is that the institution, the store itself, deserves new energy, commitment, leadership into the new future. So I think it works to the advantage of the bookstore long-term that I try to find the right people to own it and carry it forward. And so what are you looking for when it comes to a new owner? What qualities do they have to have to carry on the Romans tradition? They have to value the institution itself, what Romans does. They have to value what's in those books and what it can mean to customers. They have to at least understand Romans' position in the community in Southern California over all these years. We, we've been a pillar, to be honest with you. So they've got to respect that. Uh, I think they have to respect people. They have to respect our employees. They have to have integrity, honesty. You probably have to be willing to delve in and work pretty hard. And what do you see as the major challenges? Because your store has made it through the Great Depression, through a couple of world wars, through all sorts of economic ups and downs. And yet here you are, you've even survived Amazon. So what do you think are the biggest challenges now going forward for an independent bookstore? Well, I think they're essentially the same they have been for a couple of years, and that is the electronic revolution now moving into artificial intelligence. I understood Amazon. I understood what they were trying to do. We were not able to take those kinds of risks, and the timing just wasn't right for us to evolve in that direction. And then I watched Amazon, and that, that whole electronic revolution is still a challenge to all retailers. But COVID also was a challenge, of course, when people weren't going out. But after people have decided to rejoin the world, it seemed like going to bookstores was something people wanted. Like it was a place to meet other people, community, all that kind of thing. And you've had a lot of accomplished writers walk through your doors over the years. So can you talk about some of the highlights, like some particular moments where an author came in and, and wowed the audience or something that stands out to you in the history of Romans? We do three to 400 events a year in the Pasadena store. Uh, and so in some sense, when I talk about entertainment, we're an event venue. But we're also at this community gathering space, which is really, really important to, to Roman's nature. Author events go way back to 1914 or 16. We had people like John Muir come in and sign an autographing book. I think the most interesting one to me <laughs> was uh, Howard Stern, <laughs> the shock jock. Yeah. He was scheduled to uh, autograph in another store in Los Angeles. And all of a sudden, the city council of that city didn't want him in that city, basically, and and revoked 
permission or put pressure on the bookstore owner to not do it, basically about traffic and parking and safety. Mm, not because of what he would say. Well, I think I think that was kind of behind it all, but maybe not. I'm not a member of that city. Publisher called us, gave us two weeks notice to see if we could pull together an autographing. We had to talk to our city, of course, and they, they said, yeah, sure. Well, there were about 8,000 people, we think, uh, probably 2,000 books. It took eight hours. He stayed. He, he never left the, the autographing table except for uh, restroom breaks and uh, wanted every one of his fans to get the book that they wanted. He was absolutely gracious to his fans and to our staff. The next day, we had an unnamed member of uh, England's royal family. Hmm. And, and to be honest with you, she was just the opposite. She treated everybody like it was the royal court. And, and maybe that's accurate, uh, you know, for her. That's one that stands out. Uh, having lunch with Jimmy Carter and Rosalind Carter and in a little tiny break room on a, you know, an everyday normal kind of kitchen table. You've met a lot of people, I guess, a lot of luminaries. Hillary Clinton has been there. Justice Sonia Sotomayor has been there. Ray Bradbury was there long ago. Lots of big names. It's really staggering. It's been a kick. Hmm. Do you have any bidders so far? We have had a lot of interest. We are are trying to qualify that interest. We've had maybe one conversation that got in some depth that has not worked out. So we're just beginning the process, really. It's, it's like having an open house in your home. You you get a lot of looky-loos. I mean, they, they love the house and they want to see it. But they're really not buyers, or they don't quite have enough, or it's not the right time, or whatever. And so you have to sort through the people who meet the criteria. I have to have some connection with them. You know, you, you got to think it's a good person. You got to think it's a good fit and go forward. And we're just in that beginning phase. Well, best of luck to you as you try to find the perfect buyer and. Enjoy the sunshine. Well, thank you. I, I say to people, enjoy the sunshine. That's great. <laughs> Joel Sheldon is the owner of Roman's Bookstore in Pasadena. Coming up, the great British Bake Off host Noel Fielding is here. He'll talk about not knowing much about baking and his new show about a real-life British gangster he has turned into a clothes designing vegan. That's next on Press Play. This is Press Play on 89.9 KCRW. I'm Madeline Brand. Noel Fielding is not exactly who you'd picture as the infamous 18th century English highway robber Dick Turpin. As one of the hosts of the Great British Break Off, he seems comfortably ensconced in the world of tasty confections. Not a gang leader who steals horses, robs carriages, kills men, but he transforms Turpin into a fashion-forward, jovial guy in a new TV show. I know what you're thinking. 
Who is this guy with the incredible cheekbones? Where does he get his hair done? His jacket's supreme. Those things aren't important. Well, they are a little bit. What is important is that my name is Dick Turpin. And one day, I'll be the most famous highwayman in all of England. You are literally about to be hanged, you idiot. <laughs> <laughs> the show is called The Completely Made-Up Adventures of Dick Turpin. It debuts on Apple TV Plus March 1st. Noel Fielding is in the studio with me. Hi. Welcome. Hello. I like listening to that clip just as an audio clip. Yeah, it's oh, good. Because you put all the information in. Yeah. Your imagination. That's right. That's the picturing... magic of radio. I know. It's, I love it's a beautiful radio. Thing. It's a beautiful what a medium. thing. It's the perfect old new medium. Put the visuals in. It's boring. It takes Mm. too long. But just that. I was there. I listened to that in a completely different way. Did you? Yeah, I was really. I was. I loved doing radio. We did a radio, a Mighty Boosh radio series, and we loved it. Mighty Boosh, for people who don't know, variety show that was huge in England and was here, but kind of fringy here. Fringy cult. We were on Adult Swim. Yeah, that kind of show. Right, that show. But it was so wackadoodle, I have to say, in the best way. (laughs) It's like Monty Python on lots of psychedelics. Steroids. Yeah. Yeah. It was actually. It was like in our lineage is sort of Peter Cook, Spike, Milligan, Monty Python, Mm -hmm. weird, whimsical British comedy. So how do you get from that to... Dick Turpin. Well, I was going to go to the Great British Bake Off. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) That's an admin error. <laughs> I don't know. I'm in the wrong room, guys. It's a tent. <laughs> Help me. It's a guy with really blue eyes. Yeah. I'm scared. Um what happened was is I did the Boosh for quite a long time and other shows like the IT crowd and you know lots of British comedy and I did stand up. And then Julian and I kind of split up, but not really. It just kind of ended naturally. He's your, he's your Bush partner. Yeah, in it crime. was in a double act, basically. And, he, and then mm. we got divorced, and then I got offered the Bake Off, and I was like, oh, this is a massive show in England, right? Yeah. It's millions of people watch it. And it's like an institution. It's huge, and people love it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's nuts. You can't imagine. It's nuts. It's like old-fashioned telly. It's like people watch it, and it's weekly. And So it's know, one of those things that brings the whole country together. Yeah, it's there's a lot of responsibility, yeah. and they moved channels. They went from BBC to Channel Four, and then they changed presenters. And they offered the head of Channel Four at the time is a an incredible lady called Jay Hunt who commissioned the Dick Turpin show. She now works mm-hmm. at Apple, so she's been champion championing me for quite a long time. And she said, "I think you'd be great in the Bake Off." And everyone was like, "This guy." <laughs> <laughs> What? What did you know about baking then? Real gamble. I know about as much as I do now. Which is nothing, zero. (laughs) But you know what? Because I'm not one of the judges, and I'm not baking myself. Yeah, I feel like I'm more the audience's point of view. I'm like, what are you doing now? Why are you putting molasses into this jam (laughs) jam tart? How's that going to make things better? Or you know, I just chat to the bakers and and improvise and muck around and try and keep the sort of mood of the tent up is it mainly improvised yeah yeah you know i actually do know a lot about baking now just from being around bakers and listening to paul and prue who Mm. are very knowledgeable about baking prue's got a michelin star so i i I, i've taken it all in but i've never put it into practice some maybe when i'm like 70 i'll just start baking and i'll be amazing yeah and maybe you can be a contestant (laughs) but maybe not (laughs) 
be terrible. <laughs> it's like science baking. It's really hard. It is hard. It's like mathematics. These are not things that I was good at at school. No, so I, when the Bake Off came along, I just had a child, my first child, and it just came at exactly the right time. Mm. And I thought, I don't know how to do this show. I don't know what I'm doing. And I always think when you, that's the best, that's the best time to just force yourself into a position, into a corner. And go, right. right, I'll give it a shot. Right. I'll give it a whirl. What could go wrong? It's only like 20 million people who watch it. So that's if I really mess it up. <laughs> not a big deal at all. <laughs> it's the entire fortunes of the TV network. <laughs> <laughs> Who'd put me on that? It's such a gamble. I love that that's so British, right? To to take that kind of risk in broadcasting. Yeah. They seem, it seems to be a little more risk-taking over there. I mean, Jay Hunt, the head of Channel 4 at the time, she knew that I could do it. She saw something in me that could do it. I didn't know what that was. I, I thought I had to be a presenter, and then I realised what was good about me was that I was quite good at being interested in the bakers and making them feel uh, safe and mm-hmm. getting them to chat openly and reveal things and have great chats with them. And I was quite good at that, which I never knew. I How would you know you were good at that? It's weird. She must have seen something in me that thought, oh, he can do that. But the presenting bit, I didn't know what was going on. I yeah. was like, I've never presented before. <laughs> it was just ridiculous. I wasn't <laughs> facing the right way. And then, yeah, so I've done that for quite a while now. I've got two kids now. And you know what? Dick Turpin came at exactly the right time. It's weird, isn't it? So, Fate, how it works. Yeah, well, you have to be open to it. So, okay, Dick Turpin. He yeah. was a real character, right? He uh, was. We don't really know about him here on this side. That could be but the problem. But tell us who he was. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you have like Billy the Kid and Australians have Ned Kelly and we have Robin Hood. You know yeah, Robin Hood, we right? Know Robin Kevin Hood. Costner and yeah, yeah, Errol yeah. Flynn. So Dick Turpin is Dick also Turpin. a similar character? Well, <sighs> Rob from the rich, give in, to the poor. They live in the same... <laughs> neighborhood pouch. Sherwood Forest <laughs> I think Robin Hood was robbing from the rich and giving to the poor right. so there was a sort of ultraistic kind of tendency there there was something romantic about that yeah right this guy's amazing he robs from the rich gives to the poor and I think Dick Turpin was robbing stagecoaches and mm-hmm. keeping all the money and he got hanged so it's not quite oh, as <laughs> not as altruistic <laughs> you know what I think what happened is a couple of big writers in England, novelists and playwrights and stuff, they sort of turned Dick Turpin into a kind of dandy, into a sort of aristocratic Mm. uh, guy who robbed stagecoaches with panache and sort of um, dashing hero, Mm -hmm. which he wasn't really. And he got hung and young, he was young. So... They turned it into a sort of roman him into a romantic dandy a little mm-hmm, bit a mm-hmm. little bit and then Adamant did the rest you know Adamant did a a song about him called Stand and Deliver and played Dick Turpin and a dandy highwayman. Probably half of, you know, the power of Dick Turpin is that Adam Ant played him in a really cool way and did a brilliant video. And a great so did song. you know about him through Adam Ant? 
I think both. I think we learnt about him at school and Adamant. Adamant was my hero when I was a little kid. Really? I loved Adamant, yeah. And that was the first album I bought, Prince Charming. And you have a similar aesthetic, similar yeah, fashion we, look. Yeah, we love we love all of that. Yeah. Fashion business. So what's happened is really, because Americans don't really know who he is, it's a bit of a blank canvas for us. We can sort of take liberties artistically. So we've sort of made him a vegan um, <laughs> and a pacifist. And he's inclusive and quite kind. And he doesn't like violence. So he's got a tiny gun, but he never uses it. Uh-huh. And a tiny horse because he can't ride horses. <laughs> and he tries to be creative rather than violent. So... Okay. But he's surrounded by hardened criminals who all find that all preposterous. <laughs> but he's like a dreamer. He's a visionary. Right. He says, one day, I imagine the world where men and women will be paid exactly the same amount of money for the same jobs. Oh. And everyone laughs. Yeah, everyone's still <laughs> laughing. And it's the 17th century. So he's like a dreamer. And he calls highway men, he calls them highway people because there's a, a female in the gang, you know, now. Uh, right. And so... He's quite progressive or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the way that he deals with trying to be this uh, in charge of this sort of criminal gang is by using all those kind of skills. He gets them into trouble because of that. So I think it, it sort of generates some comedy anyway. Yeah. It's a comedy, so. Yeah, well, let's let's listen to another clip. It's a very clip. serious drama. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not, not with you in it. Couldn't be. <laughs> okay, well, let's, let's hear a clip of... Uh, the kinder, friendlier Dick Turpin. I'm working on that balaclava I promised you. I'm at a crucial stage, actually. Do you want eye holes or a slot? What I want is for you not to draw attention to us, okay? Highwaymen murder and rob. They don't knit. Well, maybe they should learn, because needlecraft can come in quite handy sometimes. (laughs) So he's really into... True. ...the outfits that his gang wears. He loves a mood board. He He loves it. (laughs) Loves an outfit change. (laughs) It's basically me. I'm playing myself. <laughs> How much of you in, is in there in the writing of it? Um, I tried to get involved as much as possible. But um, as the problem is you get older, you get busier and you have more jobs and you've got children. And, you know, there's only a limit to how much you can do. I think it's quite an obsessive an obsessive what does John Cleese call it an obsessive sport writing comedy you Uh have to until you become obsessed with it it doesn't really work so until you're doing it 24 hours a day you know so we've got some young cool writers and then I go in have ideas and you know I give them notes and stuff and they they do the the majority of it and I sort of dip in and out really Mm -hmm. I think I did quite a lot of work on episode 2 and the pilot uh, and then bits and pieces for the rest of it but I can't write as much as I used to. With the Bush, me and Julian, we were we didn't have children, we didn't have any responsibilities. No one knew who we were. We could just spend as much time coming up with these little yeah. nuggets of nonsense. Of craziness. <laughs> as we wanted. But now it's like, right, I've got from three till five. Let's go. It's really hard, <laughs> isn't it, to come up with stuff like that on demand because you really need time. You spend hours talking about nothing or, you know, not doing anything and then you get an idea just as you're leaving. It's like, quick, come back in. So seven o'clock, we'd always get an idea, me and Julian. It's like, we're leaving and it's like, oh, let's go back in and then uh-huh. we'd stay till midnight. But that would be hard to do now. Yeah. Because I'm 89. I've got 500 children. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I'm 50 and, and, and I've got two children. And a huge staff and all that. And, and it's like the structure, there's a structure to it. If it's yeah. just you and one other guy, you can I've do it. I've got two like. daughters, a five-year-old and a three-year-old, and they're hilarious, but they keep me quite busy. You know? And what are their names? Dali, after Salvador Dali, hmm. and Iggy, after Iggy Pop. Oh. And they're both amazing 
magical creatures and I love hanging out with them. So also when you have children, you don't want to work all the time yeah. because you want to have make sure you've got time for your kids, you know, Yeah. because they're so fun to hang out with. So when you're home with your girls, do yeah. you... I don't make them write jokes for you me. Know, I was going to say, but they would have some really good, probably oh, yeah. surreal lines really for you. Fun. I mean, they're very fun. <laughs> <laughs> they're always doing shows, so right. they don't really know what shows are. But they get into a costume and then I go, who are you? And they've got weird characters, like Iggy's three, and she's got a character called Soup Corn. And I don't know what <laughs> Soup Corn <laughs> seems to be this character <laughs> in a sort of balaclava. You, you might need to seed the stage to the youngs. But I sort of feel like, in a weird way, Dick Turpin came at exactly the right time. It's a really good cast, and Hugh Bonneville's in it, and the scripts are good. And it's oh, a yeah, really... Hugh Bonneville played the patriarch in Downton Abbey. Yeah, he's brilliant. And he's big, big right? chin. Everyone knows him in America, oh, right? Yeah, there's a slight obsession here he's with Downton great, Abbey. Right? Yeah. yeah, he's great. So he's I didn't very... know he, was, he did comedy. He's a very skillful comedian, actually. But yeah. I, we had quite a similar double act to me and Julian, in a way. He had, he's got a very similar energy to Julian. And we worked really well as a double act together. And we were handcuffed together for a whole episode. So um, it's quite a sort of classic double mm-hmm. act setup. And um, I really liked working with him. And there was another actor called David Threlfall, who's a very big british actor who's in the english version of shameless mm. he's frank in mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. and he's a huge shakespearean brilliant actor um there's very big heavyweight actors in it but there's loads of great comedians in it and the director was really good as well so it feel it feels like all the things were aligning all the stars were aligning uh, things it it's timing isn't it yeah really yeah the production company had the idea for Dick Turpin. They asked if I was in, wanted to get involved, and then we did some brainstorming. Then I took it to the head of Apple, who the, the lady that put me in Bake Off, Jay Hunt, and she was into it. So it felt like everything kind of fell into place. Sometimes things just don't fall into place. It's not the right time, but everything sort it of seems like into... it's the right time for you right now. Yeah, maybe. And okay, then... well, don't jinx it. Just. <laughs> You never know. I said maybe. What's around the corner? That's Half a br- very British of you. Maybe. <laughs> it's your time to shine. To see the cloud it's around the silver shine, lining. Little angel man. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Look at you. You're shining. <laughs> Let's hope. Let's hope. I'm a bit busy. <laughs> it's your time to shine. Oh, really? I've got to be back at work at four. <laughs> How long is this going to take? <laughs> Shining business. <laughs> is it going to hurt? I How know. long does it last? <gasps> All right. Well, we can end the shining right now. Can we? Yeah, we can end it. We could <laughs> shine. Let's all shine. I feel like we're all shining. Thank you for coming in today. Thank you. I didn't have anything else to do, but I did really want to come as well. You did? Yeah. Well, welcome. It was great to have you. The Completely Made-Up Adventures of Dick Turpin debuts on Apple TV Plus March 1st. It stars my guest, Noel Fielding. Thank you. Thank you. That was my favorite interview of all time. Was it? Of all time? In the top 10. I'm honored. It was as good as when SoupCon... Oh, my gosh. I'm just like... Did her third performance. (laughs) (laughs) I should be so honored. SoupCon. SoupCon. All right, Soup Corn will be hosting this show from now on. I'm Madeline Brand taking a bow. Goodbye. Maybe I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs>